For the past three messages in this series, we have been considering the unpleasant subject of the coming world ruler who is commonly called the Antichrist. He is the man who will rule this world for the final three and a half years of the future seven-year tribulation period. In the book of Revelation, this man is referred to as the beast. That designation is used to describe him because he will be a fierce and ferocious man. He will blaspheme God like no one else in the history of mankind. And he will persecute God's people like no one else in the history of mankind. So it would even be an understatement to say that he will be an extremely dangerous man. However, there will be another very important man who will dominate the world scene during the tribulation people, uh, during the tribulation period. To most people, he would not seem to be a dangerous man. Compared to the ways of the Antichrist, this man will seem docile. But in reality, he will also be extremely dangerous. In fact, he will be so dangerous that the Bible uses a very interesting title to refer to him. He is called a beast. The Apostle John tells us about him in Revelation chapter 13. Turn there with me, please. If you are not already there, Revelation chapter 13, and please follow along as I read verses 11 through 18, which will form our text of consideration for the message. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwelt on the earth to make an image to the beast that who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. We are right in the heart of the section of the book of Revelation in which John is giving great detail about the coming seven-year tribulation period. You will remember that this period of time will begin when the Antichrist signs some kind of seven-year treaty or covenant or agreement with the nation of Israel. We learn that very clearly from Daniel chapter 9. However, at the midpoint of the seven-year agreement, 
the Antichrist will break the treaty and he will begin to show his true colors. That's when he will set up an image of himself as God. That's when he will begin to blaspheme God. That's when he will claim to be God. If he is not already the world leader, he will quickly become that. And he will be assisted in his rise to power by another man who is described in these verses that we just read. Because they are so dangerous to people's spiritual well-being and eternal destiny, both men are referred to as beasts. They are beasts because they will devour people and destroy people's lives and especially people's eternal destiny. They are also called beasts because they will vehemently oppose God and His program for this world. We have already spent quite a bit of time considering the first beast, the Antichrist. Now we need to see what the Holy Spirit has to say about the second beast by way of a warning to this world. In verse 11, John says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. John says he saw another beast because in the first ten verses of this chapter, he has already been describing a beast. The first beast is a political leader. The second beast is a religious leader. The first beast arises out of the sea. The second beast arises out of the earth. We know that this man is a religious leader because later in the book of Revelation, he is referred to as the false prophet. He is called that in chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 10. So the Antichrist is a political leader. The false prophet is a spiritual leader. To say it another way, the Antichrist is a military leader. The false prophet is a religious leader. The Antichrist comes out of the sea, which represents the peoples of the world. The false prophet comes up out of the earth. Some Bible teachers believe that the earth, mentioned here in verse 11, is actually a reference to the land of Israel because throughout the Old Testament or throughout whole Hebrew Scripture, the land of Israel is simply referred to as the land. Haaretz in Hebrew, the earth. Therefore, some believe that the false prophet will come from Israel and will be a counterfeit Messiah. After all, John does describe this man as having two horns like a lamb. That may suggest his imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in Matthew 24, Jesus specifically warned the Jewish people about false Christs and false prophets that will be rampant during the tribulation period. In Matthew 24, 5, he says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. In Matthew 24, 23 and 24, Jesus says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
So some believe that this false prophet will rise from the land of Israel. But even if he doesn't, John's description of him here in verse 11 makes it clear that he will pose or present himself as a docile lamb. He will come across so unassuming. He will not be like some, like the Antichrist, some top-notch military political leader. No, this is just a religious man, a man of the cloth, a, a you know, soft-spoken man. But his words, though they may be soft-spoken, will reveal the fact that he is just as destructive as the first beast, just in a different way. He looks like a meek lamb, presents himself as a meek lamb, but in reality he will be a fierce dragon. By the way, this is what makes religion so dangerous. Many people are not discerning, so they assume that anything religious is good. If it's religion, especially if it's religion that talks about the Bible sometimes, or God, or Jesus, it must be good. And they assume, many people assume, that anyone religious is good. So the false prophet will use that gullibility to point the world to the Antichrist. The false prophet will destroy people's lives by deceiving them into thinking he is only a gentle lamb, when in reality he is a destructive dragon. When you put chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation together, you have a picture of the false trinity. Satan seeks to imitate and take the place of God the Father. The first beast, who is the Antichrist, seeks to imitate and take the place of God the Son. The second beast, who is the false prophet, occupies a role similar to the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus Christ and the false prophet points people to the Antichrist. So during these last days, the unholy trinity, if you will, will unleash all of its resources to usurp the place of the true holy trinity in people's lives. And so John says in verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. This false prophet will be so convincing that he will be able to accomplish the unthinkable. He will somehow unite politics and religion together. This is amazing when you stop to think about it. And when you put it in the context of what you see earlier in the book of Revelation. The world of people is going to be so full of hatred for God that they will not repent, even though they will be hammered by the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. Go back just a few chapters to chapter 9 of Revelation for just a a couple verse reminder. Chapter 9, verse 20, says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, that is the word for drugs, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. 
That is how hardened mankind will be during this time. They will, they will want nothing to do with God. They will want nothing to do with true religion. Yet, when this false prophet comes along, he will be able to convince these people to worship. But they won't worship the true God. They will worship the first beast, who is the Antichrist. That is mind-boggling. Now back to our text there in chapter 13. Notice that John begins verse 12 by saying that he will exercise all the authority of the first beast. In other words, he will be just as satanically energized as the Antichrist. He will be just as powerful, but in a different way. He will have just as much worldwide influence. And he will use his influence to cause the earth dwellers to worship Satan's man, the Antichrist. By the way, the phrase, he causes, is used eight times when describing the work of this false prophet. Eight times. He causes, he causes, he causes, he causes. He will have tremendous power and influence, but he will not use it to point people to himself. He will use all of his deception and trickery to cause people to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. That last phrase here in verse 12 is evidently one of the keys in the false prophet's ability to carry out such worldwide deception. It's mentioned again at the end of verse 14. Notice verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, here it is, who was wounded by the sword and lived. This is a reference to what we saw back in verse 3 of this chapter where John tells us about the first beast and he says in verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, to what is this referring here in verses 3 and 4? As I mentioned when we covered this section, there are basically two options. Number one, this may have reference to the revival of a dead empire or a dead kingdom. There is going to be a revival of ancient Roman Empire or the ancient Western Empire, and that may be what this symbolism is portraying. When the ancient Roman Empire, which has been thought to be dead, is revived... The people of the world may marvel and pledge their allegiance to this new superpower. But there's another possibility as to what this is referring to when you see this phrase. Option two, the Antichrist will be killed or nearly killed and revived. The phrase, as if it had been mortally wounded, is the same phrase used back in chapter 5, verse 6, interestingly, to refer to the death of the Lord Jesus. That is strong evidence for the view that this man will die and somehow be brought back to life. This deadly wound is emphasized several times in the book of Revelation. Several times when John mentions the beast, he refers to the fact that he had a mortal wound that was healed. 
It's interesting to note that back in chapter 11, verse 7, it says that this man comes out of the abyss. If you put all the information together, it's not a stretch. It's not a certainty, but it's not a stretch to say that this man will die, or at least appear to die, descend into the abyss, and then come back to the earth. If that's what happens, no wonder all the world will marvel. And the false prophet will use that to deceive the people of the world. What else will he use to delude people? Verse 13 tells us. Verse 13 says, He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. This man will be a prolific miracle worker. Like Elijah on Mount Carmel. He will even be able to call fire down from heaven. This probably reminds you of God's two special witnesses back in chapter 11. Revelation 11.5 says of them, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. God grants this special power to his two unique witnesses, So this final false prophet seeks to copy that same practice to further confuse the issue. I can just hear this man saying, so what that the two witnesses can breathe out fire? I can call fire down from heaven. Do you see how confusing that could be to those who are not discerning? This man will perform great signs. It's interesting to note that this same phrase is used of Jesus' miracles. Great signs. Jesus performed great signs, and this final false prophet will also perform great signs. That is really going to confuse those who are not discerning. Of course, this is how Satan always works. I mean, this has been his tactic for thousands of years. Ever since his fall, Satan has been a counterfeiter. He seeks to counterfeit God in every way imaginable. For example, the Lord God has his Christ, so Satan has his Antichrist. The Lord Jesus had a mighty prophet in John the Baptist to prepare his way, so the Antichrist will have a mighty false prophet to prepare his way. The apostles of Jesus used signs to point people to the Lord Jesus, so this false prophet will use signs to point people to the Antichrist. And tragically, many people will fall for his deception. Beloved, let this be another reminder to us that everything that looks miraculous, or even is miraculous, is not of God, even if it is in a religious context. Boy, how I wish God's people would understand that today. Everything that looks miraculous is not of God, even if it is in a religious context. But many people refuse to accept that fact, so the false prophet will be very, very effective. Verse 14 says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth, to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. This verse capsulizes the specific goal of this man's life. He wants to pull the world into the worship of the Antichrist 
by using misrepresentation. He deceives. Throughout this passage, John regularly uses the present tense, and he may be doing that to emphasize the fact that this man continually, regularly, in an ongoing manner, uses deception. It's his pattern. It's his method of operation. It's what he does all the time. He deludes people. Who are his victims, or who will his victims be? Notice the phrase here in this verse, those who dwell on the earth. That is a phrase that occurs several times in the book of Revelation. And if you do a study on the term in its context, the way it's used, you will note that it is a reference specifically, clearly, to unbelievers. It doesn't refer to everyone living on planet earth. It doesn't, certainly doesn't refer to those who belong to the Lord. It's a specific reference to earth dwellers. In fact, it could be translated that way. Earth dwellers. It's describing people who belong to this earth. Their citizenship is not in heaven. Philippians 3.20 says of us as believers, our citizenship is in heaven. These are people whose citizenship is not in heaven. It's the earth. This is their home. This is their world. This is their all. This is, this is it for them. They are earth dwellers. The earth dwellers will be primed to listen to anything the false prophet has to say. And think about this. With all the chaos of the tribulation period and all the hardship, people will be looking for answers from anyone except from the Lord. And the false prophet will take advantage of those conditions to point people to the Antichrist. In fact, he will go so far, according to this verse, he will go so far as to tell them to make an image of the first beast, the Antichrist. Of course, this is exactly what the Antichrist wants. He wants to be worshipped as God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 describes the Antichrist this way, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist will be an egomaniac. So when the false prophet causes the people of the earth to make this image, the Antichrist will be thrilled beyond words. And John reminds us at the end of the verse that one of the main things the false prophet will use as leverage to cause people to do this is the fact that the beast had a fatal sword wound that was healed. Again, when you stop to think about it, this is remarkable influence and amazing authority. It is hard to comprehend all of modern man actually making some kind of inanimate object to worship. Think about how many people in our world today pride themselves in being intellectuals who are beyond religion and beyond superstition and beyond any of that type of thing. To think of them making an inanimate object to worship. But that's what they will do. And the false prophet will do something to try to prove that their actions are not ridiculous. Verse 15 says he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now that is something else. 
as you well know, statues can't breathe and speak and plan things. Idols don't normally speak. That's why the Old Testament Hebrew Scripture often rebukes the foolishness of people who worship idols. As an illustration of this, go back with me to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. And notice what the psalmist says in verse 15. Actually, we'll read verses 15 through 18. Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. In other words, it is absolutely ridiculous and foolish to make something with your hands. You remember the prophet Isaiah talking about someone who goes out in the woods, chops down a tree. Think about all this work. Goes out in the woods, chops down a tree, cuts it into the appropriate size, then carves it into an idol, and then worships it. That is ridiculous, utter foolishness. Idols can't hear or see or talk, so why would anyone worship them? Maybe the false prophet realizes that that's how people will reason, so he does this extra special miracle. He gives breath to the image of the beast so it can talk and so it can help in the process of systematically eliminating people who will not worship the Antichrist. Now back to our text there in Revelation 13. I don't know exactly what it means when this verse says that the false prophet can give breath to the image. But I do know that this is the same kind of wording, the same kind of language that is used to refer to God giving people life. So this is an extraordinary feat. But don't miss the first phrase of Revelation 13, verse 15. It says, He was granted. In other words, God allows him to do this. It may look like he is this super powerful man, and he will be that in some senses. But in reality, he only does what God allows him to do. Even though this is a heinously deceptive thing to do, God is still in control. But this will be an atrocious act of deceit to deceive the people of the world to worship Satan's man. The satanically controlled system of the end times is described in the early verses of this chapter as a beast because the whole system will be a beast. But the man, the Antichrist himself, is called a beast. This man is called a beast because they will be so ruthless in their destruction of people's lives. Not only that, but this action here of the Antichrist will reveal the true, I mean of the false prophet, will reveal his true character. He looks looks like a gentle lamb back in verse 11, but the fact of the matter is 
he will actually be a murderer. He will use this image to which he has given breath to systematically kill those who will not worship the beast or his image. Now, how will this, will be, how will this be carried out? Well, I'm sure that one of the ways people will be killed is simply by execution. If you don't worship the beast, then they kill you in some way. Uh, decapitate you, beheaded, uh, shot, electrocuted. Who knows? The execution. But that's not the only way. The only way isn't just immediate death, immediate execution. There's a stringing out process as well, because verse 16 says this. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. If you have been a Christian any length of time, then my guess is you have heard all sorts of explanations about how this could be done. Some say it refers to a visible brand, a visible mark or tattoo-like picture. Others say it refers to an invisible stamp on the forehead or the back of the hand. Still others say it refers to a computer chip embedded just under the skin of the hand or under the skin of the forehead. All plausible explanations, but no one can be certain exactly what it is. I personally lean, and I don't have time to explain why, I personally lean toward the view which says that it's, it's actually going to be some kind of visible mark, some visible tattoo, if you will. But all we can say for sure is what John tells us here. The satanically controlled system is going to require everyone to take this mark, and whoever refuses will be persecuted. John elaborates in the next verse, verse 17. He says, And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Whoever refuses to take this mark or name or number will not be able to engage in normal daily commerce. Now, if you can't sell anything, then you won't be able to make money. And even if you have money, if you don't have the mark, then you won't be able to buy anything. Obviously, this is a way to apply harsh pressure on everyone to take the mark or the name or or the number. And those who do will be able to carry on through this difficult time. They'll be able to buy and sell, get food, etc. But in the process... They will sell their souls. Look at what chapter 14 says about their eternal destiny. The very next chapter, chapter 14, verse 9, says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, a loud voice so that no one misses this on planet Earth, so that no one can ever make the excuse, Well, I I didn't know. I, I, I wasn't aware. With a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast 
and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is such an important passage on this subject because it shows us, now please catch this, this shows us that even though the false prophet uses deception and that people will be deceived, yet the people's choice to take the mark of the beast will be a willful choice. Notice that. It will be a willful choice for which they will be held responsible. Yes, deception is involved, but it's not as if they have no clue what they're doing. No idea. They're just completely deceived, and there's no culpability on their part. To say it another way, they will willingly buy into the deception. Or to say it another way, they are not innocent victims. God will hold them responsible for their choice. So God puts these words here as a warning so that hopefully when all of this chaos that the book of Revelation describes begins to unfold, people who are here on planet earth will begin to read the book of Revelation and when they come to this 14th chapter, they will see this warning with their own eyes. And those who won't read it will hear it proclaimed from the heavens with a loud voice. So God puts all of this as a warning and as an encouragement to his people who will be living during this time. Although there will be a high price to pay for refusing the mark or the number, the high price of not being able to buy and sell, you have to scrounge around for food and uh, find some way to try to survive, a high price to refuse the mark or the number, there will be a far greater price to pay for taking the number. That's why verse 12 follows, and it says, Here is the patience, or the perseverance, steadfastness of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, write this, John, write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Why is he right that? Well, because from that point on, there are going to be a lot who die in the Lord. If you can't buy and sell, you eat what you, you have stored away, what you maybe can grow in a garden or whatever, but if you don't have access to food, you're going to start, God's people are going to start dying off. Some will be executed, maybe some die a slow death, but blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Boy, you see the emotion in that verse, the Spirit of God affirming what the Lord Jesus or whatever the voice is from heaven, the Father or an angel instructing John to write. The Spirit is so so moved with the, the situation of God's people. He, he exclaims, yes, yes, how blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on that they may rest from their labors. It doesn't mean merely just to stop because you don't have to work anymore. Their labors in this context are just the labors to try to exist and stay alive. And their works follow them. Can you imagine how much these particular words will strengthen and encourage believers during this time? There will be a high price to pay for refusing the mark or the number, but there will be a far greater price to pay for taking the number. And what will the number be? Well, you know it. Back to chapter 13. 
verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. As you probably know, in Scripture, seven is God's perfect number or number of completion, often used that way. Man's number is six, which, among other things, demonstrates the fact that no matter how hard man tries, he cannot attain to the perfection of God. Remember, the Antichrist will be the consummate man. He will have enormous power and enormous intelligence. We see that in Daniel's prophecy. In enormous abilities. I mean, this is a guy that's going to conquer the world, rule the world. Can you imagine trying to rule this world? I don't just mean the difficulty. I'm talking about the complexity. All of the nations and, the, and all of the cultures and all of the languages and just pulling that off, pulling that together. This, this man will have enormous abilities. However, he will still be 666. Furthermore, in many languages... The letters have numerical equivalents. For instance, this is true of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. You're familiar with this concept because of Roman numerals. Capital I stands for 1, capital V stands for 5, capital X stands for 10, and so on. So this could be saying, could be saying, that the Antichrist's name, when you add up the numerical value of the letters, will be equal, will equal 666. Possible. Or maybe his first, middle, and last name each begin with a letter that has the numerical value of six. Or, another possibility, maybe it's just as simple as him forcing everyone to take the number 666 on their foreheads or the back of their hands. Again, we don't know exactly what John is referring to, so we need to be careful about being dogmatic. But I'm sure that those living during this time will be able to read these verses and know exactly what John is talking about. At this point, we can't say with certainty. But as I mentioned a moment ago, it's not going to be so unclear, so confusing, and people so deceived that they have no culpability or accountability to God. They'll know. They'll know this man's number and what this means. They won't sort of just accidentally kind of slip into this. So at this point, we can't say with certainty what it is. But we can say that the day is coming when this world will be controlled by two men who in God's eyes are beasts. They are beasts because they destroy people's lives by turning them away from the true God and the true Christ to a counterfeit Christ. While promising people safety and security, they actually lead people to a Christless eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. When you read a passage like this, beloved, aren't you glad that God has opened your eyes to his truth? Aren't you glad that God has led you to his Messiah, his true Messiah, the Lord Jesus? As we see the worldwide deception that's going to take place, it should fill our hearts with joy and appreciation that our Lord Jesus Christ has to borrow Paul's words out of 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5, delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's thank him as we close together. Father, when we contemplate these verses that we have considered, some of the others beyond it, looking over into Revelation 14 and that sober warning to anyone who would worship the beast or receive his mark,
that they would uh, receive this unmitigated, this uh, undiluted wrath from your hand. And when we see such statements and such descriptions, it does fill us with joy and appreciation and gratitude that you have, by your Spirit, opened our eyes to your truth. And we don't say that lightly. We, we say that sincerely. We, we know that our hearts are hard, our, our eyes are blind, that left to ourselves we would not see, left to ourselves we would not turn and yield, but by the work of your Spirit to soften our hardened hearts and to open our blinded eyes, you have given us understanding of the truth. And we see that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true Messiah. And we believe what he said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We believe that. We see the truth in that. And we believe what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And we believe what the Apostle Peter said in Acts 4, 12, when he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. We know that is the truth. We believe that is the truth. We, we stake our eternal destiny on the truth that your Son, the Lord Jesus, is the true Christ, the true Savior, your Messiah. And how heartbreaking to think that sometime in the future, maybe the near future, we don't know how far out this is, this world will be enamored with the false Christ and will worship him and will refuse to take heed to your warnings. In the book of Daniel, the book of Matthew, the book of Revelation, the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, all throughout Scripture, you warn the world of what is going to happen in those times. And yet, as we saw earlier in Revelation 9, people's hearts will be so hard, they will not repent. They will refuse, refuse with vehemence to submit to the true God, the true Christ. And so as we think about that, we again want to give you thanks, to give you praise, to express our love and appreciation that you opened our eyes to your truth. As the blind man in John 9, we can say, This I know, that once I was blind, but now I see. And we thank you for that work of grace in our hearts. And pray for anyone who might be with us here who has not experienced that, that their hearts would be stirred by your truth and by your spirit to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.